0: Welcome back to the Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way to the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber.
1: Happy Thursday, everybody. You know what Thursdays are. They are our interview days. And today to the podcast, we have uh, as our guest, Dr. Scott Redd. He is the president of the RTSDC campus close to home from me, born and raised in Marylander, and he's also a professor in Old Testament. So, we had an Old Testament prof last time, and we have another one today, and uh, Dr. Red, you also know Tommy Park. Um, did you go to RTS Orlando by chance? I did go to RTS Orlando, yeah. Tommy Park. He can't help himself. We <laughs> we have, how many now? We have um, Brandon Crow, Mike Glodo, you know, I think Scott it's Scott Swain. Scott Swain. All right. I,
2: Sounds like you're listing the best minds of this generation, I think. I, yeah. I think yeah.
1: that we are. And um, thank you, Tommy, for bringing yet another uh, bright light to the podcast. Dr. Red, it's good to have you. It's great to be
2: here.
0: Thanks. Well, first, Dr. Red, it'll be great for us to get to know a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, role at the seminary there at RTS, uh, church,
2: life. Yeah, thanks for asking um, about me. I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, my father actually was in the Navy, and that meant we moved around a lot about every two or three years or so. I actually went to four different high schools growing up, and one of them was right down the street from you guys uh, there in Jacks Beach, Florida. I went to Fletcher High School um, and, uh, and loved that area and still love getting back to it whenever I get a chance. Um, but you know, really got serious again about my Christian faith in college, and this will kind of come back as we talk about. the the role of the catechism in my own life. But, you know, the, as I came back to the Christian faith, had a lot of questions and started finding a lot of answers, particularly in the reformed voices that were in my life. And um, that drew me back to this Reformed system of doctrine, this kind of this, this, this tradition that has a high view of scripture and a high view of Christ and a high view of salvation by faith alone and that really kind of set the trajectory for my ministry and, and and vocation ever since. So I went to RTS, Orlando, as has been mentioned, uh, planning to be a pastor and actually did do that for a few years um, after I finished my coursework for my PhD. But it was while I was also working on the PhD and, and just prayerfully considering desires and gifts and strengths, and my wife and I were talking and we realized, you know, the seminary or or rather I even put it, should put it this way, teaching theology in sort of an exhortational way. You know, I'm not interested so much in just being in an ancient civilizations program or something like that, you know, teaching scripture to people who believe it right. And want to use it and proclaim it themselves really realized that was kind of the goal. And that can happen in the church. That can happen in the seminary. That can happen in a variety of spaces. And, um, and so that's how I ended up back at, at RTS. So I now serve as the president of RTS up in here in the Washington, D.C. area. I came up here after teaching down at RTS Orlando for a few years and um, just love it. I love, the, I love the men and women that I get to work with here and the students that the Lord brings through our doors every year. And uh, many of them are going on to the pastorate, but many of them are going on to a variety of other vocations. And so it's just a joy to serve up here with them, my wife and I have five daughters. As I say, yes, five, yes, daughters, and uh, and it makes for a very full life. And one thing about lockdown, we do not feel isolated, okay, like everyone else does. So um, we've got a very full, active house, uh, even in lockdown, or maybe especially in lockdown. So um, we've been experiencing that by the grace of God.
0: Awesome. And you, earlier, you mentioned just being introduced to the shorter catechism. So when was that? What's the context?
2: So there was a, a navy chaplain who, um, at the time, was in the RPCES, I believe. Now is in the OPC. Who influenced um, my family? We didn't know it. We were just kind of broadly evangelicals, living out the seventies and eighties, and nineteen um, seventies and nineteen eighties. That is. But I remember some the the style of his teaching, and later coming back to it in life, realized. Um, Oh, he was he was catechizing us, right? He he was catechizing our family, and I realized that there were there there were these resources that I remember from my youth, which were which provided these really clear answers to these tough questions, and so I knew of it. I was aware of it, um, but it really wasn't until actually I was at seminary and we had to memorize it, and we had to memorize the shorter catechism in particular for graduation. And it was doing that with my wife around and my, uh, my oldest daughter. And they had to listen to audio of a, of a guy singing out the answers. <laughs> you, you may remember these, these audio recordings.
0: Well, the, funny that you mentioned that because our out music leaving is Bruce Benedict. Okay. Um, singing his question. So on, on your interview, we'll have Bruce sing out uh, th- this question about. Excellent.
2: King. Yeah. Well, I won't sing it for you, uh, just to serve you in that way. Uh, But, you know, Bruce, I've told him before, I still, you know, even in class when I'm teaching, if I have to recall a catechetical answer, I will close my eyes and have to sing it in my head first sometimes before it comes right out. So, Um, And by the way, my daughters can too. Uh, Multiple daughters can sing out certain questions in the catechism because they heard them sung uh, by Cardifonia. That is Bruce Benedict. Yeah.
0: And Bruce Benedict, by the way, Stevens, another RTS Orlando grad. Sorry, mm-hmm.
2: yeah,
1: I'm like the Reddited stepchild of this podcast. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> microaggressions, Tommy. <laughs> microaggressions,
2: yeah.
0: Um. Well, speaking about just being how I mean, you kind of mentioned, but how have you seen the Catechism continue to be helpful uh, in your ministry, and in particular, preparing people for ministry, um, and as you teach the Old Testament, those type of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a. I think there's kind of an emphasis that a lot of Christians may have uncritically on sort of spontaneous theological definition or spontaneous theological description, and um, when we do that, in other words, the idea that you know you should be able to say who God is just off the top of your head, sort of developing your own terms and ideas or something, and when we do that, we miss the fact that we have this incredible witness. Of people who have thought deeply about this faithfully, that the Lord's been illuminating the scriptures to Christians long before we walk this earth. And what I found is that when, uh, and this is kind of the, one of the, one of the great benefits of all creeds and confessions that are, that are faithful, but the creeds and the confessions of the church. um, When I'm thinking through theology, I want to be curtailed by the settled confessional opinion of the church in history of the communion of saints and there's something about praying to god and as i'm praying making sure that i'm honoring him as infinite eternal and unchangeable and as being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth right i mean there's there's something about that and the catechism gives me that terminology unless there, there be these conversation partners in my own faith that go beyond just my own sort of spontaneous recollection of, of a text or an idea. And that um, might be kind of complicated, but you know, where that shows up in the raising up my own children is that when they ask questions, sometimes we can say, well, what is sin? Right. <laughs> you know, what, is any want of conformity, right. You, know, you can kind of start working through these ideas and they go, Oh yeah, I do know the answer to that. I do have somewhere to start and um that for me has been a real benefit of the catechism even as a theologian and a seminary professor is that we have this wise considered description or accounting of our beliefs and uh, and i can rely on it and go back and i can rely on it and i can trust it and it's tried and true
0: so quick question do you have a favorite shorter catechism question
2: um I think the definition of God or what is God is probably the one that I refer to the most. Um, I will say that. So the ones I just, the two that I just cited now I think about it are probably the ones that I think the most about. Um, There was a, I remember when my oldest daughter was probably four years old, we were talking about it and she had heard the the catechism, the catechetical question about what is sin and i remember her turning to me and saying what how does she how does she say it she said conformity wrong she didn't know what conformity she didn't know the word conformity right um, and she she said something like what's formity and i said well it's conformity it's being it's being aligned to something and she says well what does that mean and i, I in a flash of of uh, inspiration i said well okay here's here's a straight line and here's us Okay. Sorry for the hearer. I'm making a motion with my hands. Okay. Where I'm pushing a curved hand up into a flat hand. Sorry to do that on, a, on an audio format. Um, but I said, this is conformity. And it kind of showed how the hand is pushed into the shape of the other hand. And even to this day, whenever this is cited in church or something, she, she steals a glance at me and I steal a glance at her and we go like this. You know, and it's kind of this thing, it's like, you know, this thing has developed. So for sentimental reasons, I, I might have to say, what is sin? Imagine that, you know, what is sin is, the, uh, is one of my favorite questions because it does remind us, what are we, what, what, what's going on? We're being conformed. We're being conformed to Christ and to God and to his character.
1: That's a good answer. Well, we hope that you're equally as excited today about question 26, uh, the question for which we called you here today, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of the king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So Dr. Red, um, I think I mentioned it at the head that you are a professor of old Testament there at RTS. So before jumping into the execution of Christ's kingly office, it may be prudent to, you know, ask the basic question, give us a full picture or what was the scope of the responsibilities of a king in the life of Israel? How did the kingly office come about? And what was the state of it when Jesus came on the scene in his incarnation?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So um, throughout the Old Testament, you have you have the theme of the king. It's developed. It goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, if you look at Genesis 1 and you... You see how Adam and Eve are created there, male and female, he makes them in his image, and then what does he tell what does the Lord tell them to do? Well, to go out and to fill the earth and to subdue it and that language of subduing is that language of having dominion this is this is kingly language and while there's a there are a lot of priestly themes in Genesis one about God kind of building his temple and establishing his image there 's also this little you know seed of a king planted in there that that is what human humanity is supposed to do is to have dominion and we see this also in Abraham in, in Genesis seventeen where the promise is reiterated to him that he 'll have a nation he 'll have a people, but it also says that kings will come out of you, you know it 's kind of interesting that even at this early stage in israel 's redemptive history the idea of kings coming out of Abram is already a part of the plan you know in the Mosaic covenant there are stipulations for how the king ought to live and how he Ought to be engaged with the law. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel and we have the people saying, Make us a king or give us a king like the king of the other nations, I think some Christians misunderstand that as saying that it's wrong to have a king. Um, but we've been told there was going to be, be a king all the way from the beginning. The, the problem is that Israel wants to have a king like the other nations, it's not that she wants a king. And when we see David established over and against Saul, by the way. Saul is the king who's like the other nations, and he fails because he he despises his covenantal commitments to the Lord. Um, but when we see David show himself to be a, a man after God's own heart, we see the kind of king that we ought to want, right? And this is this covenantally faithful king. And it's it's in that arrangement that the Lord reveals that he has promised David uh, a throne, a dynasty forever. That they, David will be his um, his king for all time, or that is the Davidic line will be his king for all time, and that now establishes this anticipation. Okay, actually, if you read Kings, you know First Kings. First Kings is really asking, okay, is this the son of David we've been waiting for? That is Solomon, and, and he seems to kind of start off in a way that he's going to be that kind of great king, and yet he fails. And his heart is divided, and so we await throughout the rest of Old Testament redemptive history for the, the king to come. Who will be the king who will establish the throne in the way that David anticipates, in the way the Lord promises David uh, in 2 Samuel 7. So by the end of the, uh, the Old Testament, and by definition, the opening of the new, um, you know, if, if, if the curtain were to close, as it were, on the play of the Bible, and you're about to go to intermission, and the Old Testament, which is the first part, is closing. You know, you really end with Nehemiah praying by himself, Lord, don't forget about us at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And when it opens, you have John the Baptist. You know, we could start there, depending on which gospel we want to start with. But we have John the Baptist walking out saying, repent and believe, right? He's calling people out into repentance. And what is he doing? Well, he's establishing or he's, he's foretelling of the coming of the king. And Jesus claims that for himself in a variety of ways. One of them is, is through him marching into the northern kingdom. You know, after his baptism in John and going out in the wilderness, he lives out Israel's redemptive history and succeeds even where she fails. And he marches back into the northern kingdom and says, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. Why is that? Because the king is at hand.
1: It's interesting that you mention in the Old Testament that it wasn't the Existence of a king that was necessarily bad, but it was the people's motivation for seeking out a king that God, as our king, is insufficient for the task, and we want a king like the nations around us. And you go to Deuteronomy 17, Mm -hmm. because we all talk about Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses is going to raise up. In Deuteronomy 17, we actually get the laws concerning Israel's kings Mm -hmm. decades before the institution of the kingship. Uh, So uh, I I think that's a good point that the Bible was anticipating a king and we need a king to rule over us, defend us, subdue uh, all of, subdue us and defend us against our enemies. So thank you.
2: Yeah. And we read backwards too, right? So why do we need a king? It's not just because Adam had kingly duties or Abram would have kings come out of him, but also because we need Jesus and Jesus is a king. So it can't be bad to have a king, right? We need King Jesus and you know the, the seeds of his reign are already planted early on in the Old Testament story.
1: Mm. So the question that really sort of got us to this place where we started talking about Christ's three offices is question 23 of the Shorter Catechism, where it says that Christ executes his prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices both in his hum- a state of humiliation and exaltation. So there's a Two aspects, or there's two realms or phases in which Christ executes the prophet, priest, and king aspects of his ministry. Mm-hmm. So, could you describe for us how Christ exercised his kingly rule in his humiliation, or mm-hmm. we could say maybe during his earthly ministry?
2: Yeah. So, and this is one of the things we focus on a lot in in my in Old Testament classes for the seminaries when we talk about. Being a king or being a prophet or being a priest, there's kind of certain functions that are attached to each one of those offices. And the kingly office would include things like things that are mentioned here in the shorter catechism. And and you get a, you get a more full answer as you'd expect in the larger catechism. Um, But notice here, he is a, he's a warrior. So God or God is a warrior is a kingly attribute, Jesus being a warrior, defending his people. That's a kingly, that would be a kingly task. The king would lead the people out in salvation. Um, uh, wisdom interestingly you know wisdom is housed in the office of the king Uh, building programs that's a part of the office of the king so when we see jesus come for instance i mean we first see him coming out of the desert as the messianic king bringing restoration to the people and the man in the desert is proclaiming the coming of the king is john the baptist making straight In the desert, the way of the Lord, right? Um, Jesus marching back is ushering the people back from exile. He's he's bringing them back in as a king victorious, and that's what Matthew points us to as well. When Jesus goes into Galilee and says, "Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand," Matthew says that's fulfilling Isaiah nine. The people who were in darkness, that is, the northern kingdom, have seen the great light. Jesus is bringing the light back to the northern kingdom. They went into exile first. Perhaps they get to see the light of restoration kingdom first. Um, but anytime Jesus is conquering, a, you know, demons, um, whenever he is refuting those who would afflict his people, he is being kingly, right? Anytime he's marching out in battle against the forces of chaos, calming the the wind and the waves is a creatorly task, and this would be a kind of kingdom task. Um, you know uh, whenever he's doing wisdom, in, in many ways, actually the, the Sermon on the Mount, with its blessed statements, its, its beatitudes, are, are a kind of wisdom literature, what we might call didactic literature from the Old Testament, actually sounds very similar to some of those teaching poems we find in the Old Testament. And just as Solomon was the great sage, right, it's again, wisdom is, is in the kingly office. These are talking about wisdom counselors who would probably attend to the king. Jesus himself is the sage greater than Solomon, right? And he's, when he's teaching, he's showing himself to be a great king, okay? And all of these are things that he's doing in his humiliation. If we take the confe- the catechism and the confession's view, that his humiliation involves the whole of his incarnation his life here on earth and his movement towards crucifixion you know all of this is, is a way in which he is going out on behalf of his people defending them uh rebuking their enemies training them in wisdom building up his kingdom you know these are all aspects of the kingly duty of christ and then ultimately in the great commission where he points out that all authority in heaven and on earth and it's interesting there's no caveats there Uh, He doesn't say all authority in the church has been given to me. He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we're now speaking of of this expansion of his kingship or this declaration of his kingship that will be affected in his glorification when he rises to the right hand of God the Father.
0: Well, Dr. Red, speaking of that, you know, the kind of second piece of that, you have the exaltation. Uh, this semester with RUF, I'm preaching through Acts, and right there at the beginning you have Jesus ascending into heaven. So how does Christ execute his kingly rule now in his exaltation? So what, what does that look like now?
2: Well, I think in addition to the language of him sitting at the right hand of God the Father, he, he's being the, the the human messianic king, right, in this covenantal arrangement okay between the the suzerain who is god the father and the vassal he's being the faithful vassal king um and he's sitting at the right hand of god the father he's 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 recognizing this covenantal arrangement okay in that in in this particular vision that we have of of the risen lord in the new testament um interceding on our behalf uh but but ruling he's he's been he's been given all authority as he mentions and as a result of that he's taken that authority and by it commissioned his church to go proclaim his kingdom okay And so for the church, Christ's kingly role is being worked out through the gospel proclamation and ministry of the church right that, that's why you know the apostles call, the church, the body of Christ, right? We are in effect his hands. We're doing the work that he inaugurated uh, in, in his first coming, and now he's expanding his kingdom uh, in this way through the proclamation of the gospel around the world. And so I think you know, if you want to talk about the primary agency of Christ's kingdom, well, the primary agent is now in the church on, you know, on earth. Um, and yet you're feeling the effects of his kingdom. As Christians are living unto their King, as they're living to the glory of God, serving not earthly masters but their heavenly Lord, you know that the kingdom of God is the effect of it is being felt in everywhere that the church is um, is having influence, is, is is working out its estate. Okay, and that's not merely in Sunday morning worship. Though, it of course, is that but also in the lives and the work of every Christian around the world.
0: Dr. Red, can you also kind of go back to the Old Testament here and kind of connecting with the new? So can you explain to us the connection between David's kingship and Christ? Uh, yeah,
2: that's a good question. I, Jesus considered this a really interesting topic. <laughs> he talks about it. If you look at Matthew 22. There's this interesting passage, for particularly for an Old Testament person, because yeah, Jesus is reflecting on Psalm 110, and he's he's looking at the language there where it says, you know, uh, the Lord said to my Lord. So Adonai, okay, this is the, this is the divine name, said to Adoni, okay, which is now the more common phrase, my Lord. Um, Sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies uh, your footstool. And Jesus reflects on this and says, well, this is a Psalm of David, and why would David call... His sort of natural-born son, Adoni, right? He's saying, he's like, "Why would he, why would a father call his son my lord?" Unless this was a different kind of arrangement that was typically understood. David would not have called Solomon my lord, right? It's an interesting little interpretation that Jesus is doing here of the Old Testament. It's really fascinating to me because he's saying, "Now, notice in there already in this in this well-known psalm to you Second Temple Jewish." Uh, your second temple Jewish audience in this well-known, well-known Psalm. It's almost as if the seeds of the fulfillment are already planted in the Psalm, right? And he's saying, clearly David is speaking of a different kind of son who will establish his reign. So Jesus is the son of David and that he's in the line of David. And I think we would say with Matthew five seventeen and elsewhere, Jesus is fulfilling the old Testament. So he's fulfilling those promises that the Lord gives to David In 2 Samuel 7, he's fulfilling it by being or establishing the forever throne in the line of David. Um, So he is is natural born, as it were, out of David. And yet at the same time, he's the different kind of kingly heir than you might expect, right? Because he is indeed the incarnate son of God. So um, he's a fulfillment of those things. I, I think of David, I think actually all of the covenants in the Old Testament is establishing the groundwork so that we can understand the work that Jesus is himself doing, right? It's, it's, it's a kind of blueprint so that we can understand the kingdom that Christ has brought to bear. And, and in order to understand how Jesus is fulfilling this role of human king, okay, because he is very human, okay, not merely, merely very God, um, we have to understand him as fulfilling this promise of a son of David who would establish uh, a throne that would last forever.
0: So, as we kind of joked about earlier, we both went to RTS Orlando, so we both have a little bit of Richard Pratt deep down inside, is my (laughs) assumption. Uh, So, so what aspect of Christ's kingship do you think is most overlooked by Christians today? You know, kind of moving more I just have to
2: cite Richard Pratt, because, I mean, (laughs) actually, I mean, something Richard would always point out, this is, I think this is a good point, that um, I think in, in sort of Unexamined evangelical belief in, in practice, the idea of God being our Father, um, the idea of Jesus being our King is sort of one of intimacy. Even Father is kind of more like I can, you know, because God is my Father, I can, uh, you know, I can, I can I can go to Him with this sort of like presumption, perhaps, or something like that. Um, he's my Daddy, right? Abba means Daddy which actually isn't the case. But, um, you know, this, this whole idea, And sorry if you've ever preached it. I know it preaches, but it doesn't work linguistically. Um, you know, the idea of God being Father is that God is our royal Father. He's our, he's our King. We go before Him because we have the spirit of sonship in Christ. I'm going to get to Jesus as King in a second. So when we go before the Father as King, we're going in still with reverence and awe in worship. He's the, this is the King, right? We're coming before the King. Um, and we can only do so because we're coming before Him in, in under the rubric of uh, the faithful King Jesus. Okay, and so I think we can sometimes miss Jesus when we talk about Jesus being our Savior. Um, the idea of bringing salvation is a kingly task. This is this is Jesus is not merely calling us to have faith in Him. I mean, He's calling us to have faith in Him, but he, that that faith is faith in Jesus. Not merely as sort of someone who gets me out of my problems, but as my Lord, as my King, right? And as my King, as my wisdom teacher, as the one who goes out in battle ahead of me and gives me the victory against Satan, sin, and death. Okay, when I come before Jesus, um, he's not just my bro, right? He's, he's not just my friend, though he is that, he's my kingly friend. Right? Now, I think we miss that sometimes. We miss, we miss the fact that because Jesus tells us things, um, that should have an incredible, uh, incredible influence on, on what we believe and how we believe, even against maybe some of the directions that we see in this world around us. Sometimes I'll tell people, I believe this because my king told me this was the way it was, right? I, mean, I, I could say that for Mosaic authorship. I believe in Mosaic authorship of the, of the Pentateuch because my king tells me Moses wrote it. Right, and that's not fittyism, that's not just kind of some sort of raw, easy believism. That's me submitting to the kingship of Jesus Christ.
1: Jesus is definitely a friend for sinners, but He's also our King. He there's the it connotes this aspect of authority that He has an authority over our lives. So, just to clarify, Abba doesn't mean daddy, Tommy. You're gonna have to change your sermon manuscript uh you know for next time you preach here now see that
2: you can take it out if you want i mean he, he tra- it's, it's translated right after it says abba abba pater
1: father yeah. man this is why we got the old testament prof on yeah. the uh on the podcast so
0: they like they like to shake it up we do <laughs> so yeah so last question dr Wet read uh, just thinking through this practically, what are some resources? One thing that we like to do here at The Shorter is to give our listeners resources. Uh, we often, we want them to continue this conversation. We don't want them to listen to your our great minds think through this and then like, all right, that's cool. But well, what are some, maybe a couple resources, books, maybe people to go listen to, um, to continue to think through this uh, kingly, the kingship of Christ in their lives?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think kind of generally speaking, I've benefited much from the work of John Frame, uh, particularly his Lordship series. Um, He's doing this kind of large, multi-volume project of trying to lay out what a system of Christian belief would look like, systematic theology really. If understood in light of the lordship of Christ, and so that's kind of the prevailing grid through which he's looking at Christian belief, and, and it's quite convincing to me, and I think it's a very balanced view of Scripture. So I think anything by John Frame in his lordship series, some of that's a little more technical than others. You know, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, for instance, his work on epistemology, um, you know, might uh, might be a, a stretch for some folks, um, but all of his work I think is beneficial. Um, Dick Belcher, one of my colleagues here at RTS, wrote a book on the Messiah and the Psalms. It just came out. It came out in two thousand and six, I believe, um, and that's a great study just of messianic anticipation that we find in the Psalter, which is where we see a lot of this kingly anticipation, which we shouldn't be surprised by, of course, given David's central role there in the production uh, of the Psalms. But any good um, any good biblical theology. Is going to delve deeply into a kingly, you know, a, a search of the kingly theme in the Bible. You know, one that comes to mind right away, of course, is um, you know, Herman Ritterboss, Coming of the Kingdom. Again, that's a bit of a stretch for some, but if you commit the time and the energy, uh, I think that book will just expand your devotional life and your understanding of Christ as King. And if you want something a little bit more accessible, you know, Greg Beal um, uh, has a theology, a biblical theology of the New Testament that's um, got a chapter. It's got a couple of chapters dealing with the themes surrounding the kingship that I think is going to be a great resource for for anybody.
1: Well, thank you for those resources. Uh, just to give you a sense too of what we're doing. So today, uh, you know, we're interviewing you and we'll release this episode. But with this, we're also going to release kind of an explanation of what the kingdom of God is. Because for a lot of people, it's this abstract idea that's hard to get our arms around. So we're using the Kingdom of God and the Church by uh, Voss, uh, where he, he talks about those things. You can never go wrong with Voss, right?
2: You're shaming me that I didn't say that. And I, I get it. I hear you.
1: <laughs> that, that, uh, that's that. a
2: great resource.
1: <laughs> so, but uh, honestly, the, the G.K. Beal and I, I read the, uh, the Kingdom of God um, by Ritterboss in seminary. And like you said, it is meaty. Uh, you got to wade through some stuff, but really profitable for any and all that pick it up. Amen. So, uh, well, Dr. Red, thanks again for joining us from uh, all the way there in D.C. Thanks for the long commute through the ethers to talk to <laughs> me and Tommy. Uh, if you're down this way again, you know, show us your stomping grounds, drive by Fletcher or uh, Angie Subs. They had Angie's back when you were here, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, big hangout. We'll get some Angie's uh, if you're in town. I love it. I'm on my way. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. And thanks uh, for all the listeners as well. Until we talk to you all next time,
3: keep it short. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king. Subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us And in restraining and conquering All his and our enemies How Christ executed the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies.